small country church. And uh, I want to share a little bit of how I ended up at Chafer. I uh, went to Bible school at Frontier School of the Bible, and it's a wonderful school that is very reasonably priced, and their focus is on giving people a solid Bible foundation uh, and preparing them for ministry. And, and I really appreciate my foundation there. But f- from my education there, God was really leading me to further my education. I, I feel a call on my life to uh, defend the Word of God, especially from a dispensational, free grace uh, perspective. I had a lot of friends that have, um, have departed from that theology, and, and it, it makes me sad, but it, it also... Uh, I think has has convicted me for a need there to um, hopefully be someone that can continue that that sound teaching. And so, uh, with that being said, I I was able to make a series of connections. I've followed the ministry of Dr. Andy Woods for quite some time. I became acquainted with the ministry of Jeremy Thomas uh, and Charlie Clough and uh, Robert Dean and. Um, the ministry of Preston Bible Church, Preston City Bible Church with David Roseland, and uh, following all these pastors, and lo and behold, they all uh, are teaching at Chafer. And uh, I didn't know if my credits would be uh, accepted because Frontier School of the Bible was unaccredited, um, but my credits were able to be approved for that, and I also uh, transferred from from another seminary, and those credits were uh, accepted as well. And I've I've loved my classes so far. I've only We've taken a, a couple classes now, but just the personal interaction that you get with the professors and these men that I for so long have looked up to giving uh, hands-on training uh, to the Word of God is, is a wonderful blessing, and, and I'm blessed to be a part of the Chafer family. Uh, so thanks for listening. teacher for this afternoon, Dr. Scott Anile. Um, he was here back four or five years ago, and I think some of you remember him. And uh, he has a really unique uh, skill set for us, and that is to learn the structure of music and the, uh, the actual music itself. Um, so Scott is going to deal with this. Uh, he has a master's degree in theological studies from Southwest Baptist Seminary, master's degree in aesthetics, and a Ph.D. in worship ministry. He's now the associate professor and chair of the Ph.D. worship studies at Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. He serves as the chair of the biblical worship section of the Evangelical Theological Society. So he's a lot of interaction, and I think we can all profit from this, uh, it's a, a, a kind of a, a rare thing to deal with the uh, music itself, because that too is an issue in our culture. Uh, so I'm going to uh, turn it over to Scott, and uh, Robbie wanted me to remind you that on the website, on the West Houston uh, Bible Church website, there's a little place where you can donate money through PayPal. So with that... Scott, you're on. All right. Over 
It is a real joy and delight to be back. I think it was here in 2013, so it's been uh, it's been a little bit of time and uh, since I've been here, but was very thankful to uh, receive the invitation to come back, and uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, we're going to end up there. It's going to take us a little while to get there, uh, but I do want to spend uh, um, a good amount of time in 1 Corinthians 14 in just a just a few moments. Robbie asked me to to deal with the the uh, the subject of the aesthetic aspects, the cultural aspects, the musical aspects of our corporate worship, and we are going to get there over the next couple of days. Uh, but I do really believe, you know, that we 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 tend to focus on uh, music and and the aesthetic and cultural aspects of corporate worship. That tends to be where a lot of debate lies and controversy lies. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, I think those sorts of things are actually uh, more application and symptomatic of more fundamental. Uh, doctrinal and philosophical issues with with regard to mu- to, to worship and and even music itself, and so uh, part of what I'd like to do in in o- over the course of these successions in the next couple of days is to address some of what I think are actually more fundamental issues, biblical issues, theological issues, and philosophical issues. Uh, but we will get to also a discussion of aesthetics and culture and music in particular as well uh, as as symptomatic and as uh, as applications of what I what I think are broader and more fundamental issues of our theology of worship and our understanding of the nature of culture and of of aesthetics. So we're going to get to some of that, uh, uh, Lord willing, over the next couple of days. But one of the uh, one of the fundamental issues that I think really is at play when we when we d- discuss applications uh, of, of our corporate worship and in in particular our music and other. Uh, cultural forms is is really a biblical theology of worship to begin with, and in particular, understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in our corporate worship. A couple of years ago, I heard uh, a young evangelical say this: "Our church's worship is pretty formal, but I prefer Holy Spirit-led worship." So, of course, the assumption is that if there is Holy, Spe- Holy Spirit, truly Holy Spirit-led worship, it will be informal. It will be spontaneous. It will not have any sort of structure or order to it. And I, I would say that this is probably a, a fairly common uh, conception by many evangelicals today concerning the Holy Spirit's role in a church's worship service. If the Holy Spirit is active, the the results will be something extraordinary, something that would would be quenched by too much form or too much order or even in some circles, too much scripture. Too much scripture will actually quench the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. You actually see this kind of kind of language. Well, that is, is certainly a common perception, but how grounded in Scripture is that expectation concerning the nature and purpose of corporate worship, and in particular, the Holy Spirit's role in corporate worship? That's the question before us this afternoon. My goal is to assess that common expectation, measuring it against Scripture, what the Scripture teaches regarding the Holy Spirit's work uh, throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and then particularly, and this is where we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 14 uh, uh, toward the end of our time, particularly what the, what the scriptures teach about the Holy Spirit's work in corporate worship. 
I want to begin by laying out this sort of common expectation. I want to summarize what the common expectation of the Holy Spirit's work in worship, I think, typically is, assess a little bit historically and theologically where that common expectation comes from, because I think it's very revealing, and then I want to spend some time in the scripture broadly looking at how the Holy Spirit works, and then narrowing our focus to the New Testament, narrowing our focus specifically to the context of corporate worship in 1 Corinthians 14. As I mentioned, arguably... The default expectation of contemporary evangelical worshipers is that the Holy Spirit works in worship in such a way as to create an extraordinary experience. This is, I think, well expressed in the very popular worship song uh, that's in the churches today. If I can get the slide to advance here. By Brian Torwald and Katie Torwald. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. That's the common expectation. If the Holy Spirit's at work, it's going to be something extraordinary. Many theologians and authors who have come to shape contemporary evangelical worship embody a theology of the Holy Spirit's primary work as one of making God's presence known. That, that's, that's how they conceive of the Holy Spirit's primary work. The Holy Spirit is working, his primary work is to make God's presence known to us. For example, uh, Wayne Grudem argues, quote, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially the church. It seems that one of his primary purposes in the new covenant age is to manifest the presence of God to give indications that make the presence of God known. To be in the Holy Spirit, he says, is really to be in an atmosphere of God's manifest presence. Another author, Zach Hicks, uh, writes something similar when he says the Holy Spirit has an agenda in manifesting his presence to us. Another popular worship author, Bob Coughlin, says there are times, of course, when we become unexpectedly aware of the Lord's presence in an intense way. A sudden wave of peace comes over us. An irrepressible joy rises up from the depths of our soul. None of us, Coughlin insists, should be satisfied with our present experience of the Spirit's presence and power. Now, that, that sort of expectation is, is certainly not new. I think you see it in, in various authors through the history of the church. However, I would suggest that the contemporary iteration that I'm summarizing here is rooted in a Pentecostal theology of the Holy Spirit's work. I want to recommend to you a really helpful little book that came out a couple years ago. It's called Lovin' on Jesus... A Concise History of Contemporary Worship. It's by uh, Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a fantastic, objective uh, assessment of the history of what has led to modern contemporary worship theology and practice. And in that book, Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth convincingly demonstrate that Pentecostalism with what, and by the way, these, these two authors are, are sympathetic. They're not critical of, of either Pentecostalism or contemporary worship. They're just giving an objective historical analysis of where the common conceptions and theology and practice of contemporary worship come from. 
And they, they demonstrate that Pentecostalism with what they say is a revisioning of the New Testament emphasis upon the active presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in a moment, is one of five key sources of contemporary worship. There are five key sources that they identify. One of them, and arguably the most significant of them, is a Pentecostal theology of the Holy Spirit. They suggest, quote, Pentecostalism's shaping of contemporary worship has been both through its own internal development within Pentecostalism, but also through an influencing of other Protestants in worship, piety, and practice. In other words, the Pentecostal theology of the Holy Spirit has gone on to influence others who are not Pentecostal explicitly in their theology of the Holy Spirit and nevertheless has influenced the perceptions and expectations of what many evangelicals have come to assume. And, And they suggest that there are uh, there are a couple ways in which Pentecostalism has influenced even non-Pentecostals when it comes to our expectation with corporate worship. Number one, mainstreaming the desire to be physical and expressive in worship, which is characteristic of contemporary worship. Ruth and Lim say this comes from Pentecostalism. Number two, highlighting intensity as a liturgical value. Number three, a certain expectation of experience to the form of contemporary worship. And number four, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment, a, what they call a musical sacramentality that raises the importance of the worship set, that is the, the musical portion of the service, as well as the musicians leading the set. And that's going to be an important concept I want to address here in a moment. Uh, Another author, Daniel uh, Albrecht, agrees with this. He says, the presence of the Holy Spirit then is fundamental to a Pentecostal perspective of worship. The conviction that the Spirit is present in worship is one of the deepest beliefs in a Pentecostal liturgical vision. The expectancy of the Spirit's presence is often palpable in the liturgy. Their liturgical rites and sensibilities encourage becoming consciously present to God, even as God's presence is expected uh, is, is expected to become very real in worship. And this is this is going to this is going to influence specifically how music is used, which we'll talk about. This is specifically tied to what contemporary worship uh, practitioners refer to as the flow of the emotional expressiveness of worship music. So I mentioned uh, Zach Hicks a moment ago who wrote a book called The Worship Pastor. Uh, Hicks says this, part of leading a worship service's flow involves keeping the awareness of God's real abiding presence before his worshipers. All of the elements of worship pass by. The one constant, the true flow, is the presence of the Holy Spirit himself. This kind of flow, which again, he's referring specifically to the music, the kind of music that's chosen, how it's led, how it's accompanied, and how it is ordered, this kind of flow lies in understanding and guiding your worship service emotional journey and so grouping songs in such a way as they flow together is essential as another author Carl Tuttle says is essential to a good worship experience 
The goal and expectation of any worship service, according to Barry Griffin, another contemporary worship leader, is to bring the congregational worshipers into a corporate awareness of God's manifest presence. So you can see how music really is raised to a very important significance. It is through music that we come to experience and feel the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. James Stephen says this, By investing heavily in particular signs of the Spirit's presence, such as ecstatic physical uh, patterns of behavior, church members define the Spirit by by the empirical measurement of particular phenomena, which if absent, imply that the Spirit has has not turned up. So if we, if we don't feel these physical phenomena, largely through the way that we use music, then maybe the Holy Spirit hasn't, hasn't shown up. For Pentecostals and other continuationists, this expectation, of course, can, uh, includes miraculous gifts such as tongues and prophecy, which we'll talk about in a moment. But even for other evangelicals who don't necessarily hold to a Pentecostal theology of the Holy Spirit, the, the default expectation is that the Holy Spirit of God will manifest God's presence in other extraordinary ways, such as heightened experience or emotional euphoria. So even people don't believe it's going to be tongues and prophecy, nevertheless say, if the Holy Spirit shows up, there is going to be an extraordinary emotional euphoria in the service. That's how we know God is present. And it is largely felt through the music And so, worship in which the Holy Spirit is directly active is often necessarily connected with spontaneity and freedom of form. Worship that is is structured and regulated in this view is the opposite of spirit-led worship, as as evidenced by that, that, that statement by the young evangelical I heard a number of years ago. As Lim and Ruth note, most contemporary worship, impacted as it is by this kind of understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in worship, considers, quote, extemporaneity as a mark of worship that is true and of the Holy Spirit that is worship in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth, by definition in this understanding, will be spontaneous and, and extemporaneous. This view of extemporaneity, they note, has been held widely within free church ways of worship, but it has come to characterize modern evangelical contemporary worship. What what Albrecht observes of Pentecostal worship here in this quote, I think has become the standard expectation for most of evangelicalism. Look Look what he says. In the midst of radical receptivity, an encounter with the Holy Spirit may occur. Pentecostals envision such encounters as integral to the worship experience, while an overwhelming or overpowering experience of or in the spirit is neither rare nor routine for a particular Pentecostal worshiper. The experiential dimension of worship is fundamental. The liturgical vision sees God as present in the service. Consequently, Pentecostals reason that a direct experience of God is a normal expectation. And again, what he's saying of Pentecostalism, I would suggest, has become the dominant default expectation of most of evangelicalism. So, how do, how do we measure this against Scripture? That's, that's what, what I want to focus our attention on this afternoon. And of course, ultimately... Expectations concerning the Holy Spirit's work in worship must derive not from experience, but from the scriptures. 
So what does the Bible teach? A number of years ago, I spent some time and I cataloged every action from Genesis to Revelation specifically attributed to the Spirit of God. Anytime it was clear that that third person of the triunity is in view and there is some sort of action attributed to him, categorized those, cataloged those, and then assessed that, that understanding and that scriptural data against this common expectation of how the Holy Spirit works in general and specifically how he works in the context of corporate worship. And if you take all of the biblical data concerning the Holy Spirit's work throughout history from Genesis to Revelation into account, of course, there is no doubt that he works sometimes in extraordinary ways. There are extraordinary activities attributed to the Holy Spirit of God in the scriptures, right? That's undeniable. But extraordinary works of the Spirit, if you look throughout the scriptures at, at, at how the Holy Spirit works, extraordinary works are not the ordinary way that he works. He does work in extraordinary ways, but if you actually look at the, the texts, if you actually look at scripture, they, they actually are very infrequent. When extraordinary experiences do occur, it's important to, to recognize that they happen specifically during significant transitional stages in the outworking of God's plan. I think Sinclair Ferguson helpfully articulates this. In the scriptures themselves, he says, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit appear to be limited to a few brief periods in biblical history in which they serve as confirmatory signs of new revelation and its ambassadors and as means of establishing and defending the kingdom of God in epochally significant ways. Outbreaks of the miraculous sign gifts in the Old Testament were, generally speaking, limited to those periods of redemptive history in which a new stage of covenantal relationship was reached. I think sometimes sometimes the average person in the pew thinks, man, miracles were going on all the time throughout all of Scripture. Why shouldn't they keep, keep happening today? When in reality, there's only little pockets where there is significant activity of ex- what we would consider extraordinary works of the Spirit. And they're at significant transitional stages within the working of God's plan. He says, but these sign deeds were never normative. Nor does the Old Testament suggest they should have continued unabated even throughout the redemptive historical epoch they inaugurated. Consistent with this pattern, he says, the work of Christ and the apostles now in the New Testament were confirmed by signs and wonders. So in other words, to focus on the relatively few cases in biblical history of extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit and then draw from those a theology that assumes this to be the regular activity of the Holy Spirit fails to take into account the purpose of these works and the overarching plan of God. They served a specific purpose. And the purpose that they served was during those transitional stages in the outworking of God's plan. And even more than that, even the extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit, such as giving of revelation to the prophets, for example, or the apostles, or empowering for service, the theocratic anointing of the Old Testament, or, or even the anointing of Christ or, or the apostles for specific service. Those kinds of, of admittedly extraordinary things, even those extraordinary works hardly resemble 
the kinds of extraordinary manifestations that contemporary worshipers have come to associate with the Holy Spirit, such as emotional euphoria or atmosphere. Even if Christians in this present age should expect extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit, even if that were true, what most contemporary evangelicals have come to expect, I would suggest, does not fit the biblical pattern of how the Holy Spirit works. So what is that biblical pattern? How, how If you look at all the way the Holy Spirit works in both the Old and New Testament, and we're going, to specifically fo- we're going to specifically narrow our focus in a moment to the New Testament, but if you look at how the Holy Spirit normally works, how does he normally work? He sometimes works in extraordinary ways, but how does he regularly work throughout the course of biblical history? Well, well, rather, I would suggest that the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is better characterized not as extraordinary experience, but rather as an ordering of the plan and people of God. If you take into account all of the actions attributed to the third person of the triunity in Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, while in some cases those actions are extraordinary, most of them, I would suggest, could be summarized as ordering the plan and people of God. Ferguson notes that the very first action of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, is that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what God planned in the mind, what, what, he, what he has planned in the mind of God. The Holy Spirit brought to order the chaos. Jonathan Edwards said something similar. He developed this theme in his discussion of the Holy Spirit's work. He said, it was more especially the Holy Spirit's work to bring the world to its beauty and perfection out of chaos, for the beauty of the world is a communication of God's beauty. The Holy Spirit is the harmony and excellency and beauty of the deity. Therefore, it was his work to communicate beauty and harmony to the world, and so we read that it was he that moved upon the face of the waters. So this is why Ferguson says this is exactly the role that the Spirit characteristically fulfills elsewhere in Scripture. What the Holy Spirit did in Genesis chapter 1 in bringing the world to order is exactly his normal work through the course of Scripture. This this overarching characteristic of ordering describes much, if not all, of the Holy Spirit's actions throughout the Bible, including even the extraordinary things, including the giving of revelation, giving of life, both physical and spiritual, sanctifying individual believers. All of the those are those are the most dominant activities attributed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture: revelation, giving of life, and the sanctification of the believer. All of these works could be characterized under this broader idea of bringing to order what God has designed, what God has planned in his people and in the world in the world in general. Graham Cole summarizes this way, creation and its sustenance are the work of the spirit as the spirit implements the divine purposes in nature and history. Ordering is the dominant activity of the Holy Spirit. So before we, before we narrow to 1 Corinthians 14, I just want to really quickly summarize through the dominant activities of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture 
and, and, and see that in each of these cases, ordering, bringing to order, is the dominant activity. For instance, what is the purpose of revelation? I mean, that's, a, that's an extraordinary thing. The Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets. The Holy Spirit speaking through the apostles. That's extraordinary. But even Spirit-given revelation had as its ultimate purpose bringing order to God's plan in the world. The Holy Spirit gives special revelation to disclose the nature and character of God, explain God's requirements, correct sin, and give hope for the future. In the same way, he guides the apostles in the New Testament into the truth necessary to establish Christian doctrine and set the church in order. And ultimately, of course, he inspires a prophetic word more fully confirmed, Second Peter chapter 1, the canonical scriptures, which have been given to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The, the nature of this kind of giving of revelation was such that it brings to order God's people, brings to order God's plan. And in even the way that inspiration occurred was also in an orderly fashion. Holy men of God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, were led into this truth that was inscripturated in an orderly way. Spirit-inspired revelation is both for the purpose of order and produced in an orderly fashion. The prophets and apostles were not somehow out of their mind, carried into a mystical trance as they inscripturated the word of God. They were fully in their minds when they did so. It was done so in an orderly fashion. In the same way, even empowering of individual leaders for special service was ultimately for the purpose of bringing order to God's plan, both in Israel and the church. If you look at, for instance, the judges or the, or, or the, the kings of Israel who were given a, a, a special work of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish God's plan. Why was that? It was to bring to order God's plan. In the New Testament, when the apostles were given a special empowerment by the Holy Spirit of God in order to help found the church, what was its purpose? To help found the church, to bring order to God's plan in the world. In other words, while it is accurate to say that the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways, the empowerment for service was an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit, even that was for the purpose of bringing God's purposes into order. The Holy Spirit's characteristic work is not only of bringing God's plan to order, but it's also, third, a moral ordering. This is his work of sanctification in the life of a believer. This work begins with his act of convicting sinners, regenerating hearts, bringing life and order to, to once dead and disordered lives. And this reordering continues with his frequently mentioned work of sanctification. He circumcises the hearts of believers. He strengthens our inner beings. He, he, he pours love into our hearts, leading us to fulfill the righteous requirements of, uh, of God's law. A particular importance for this discussion is what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The, the, the fruits of this sanctifying work. What's that going to look like? Well, it looks like order. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, the, the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament concerning what is the characteristic work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life to bring us to maturity 
is one of ordering our lives to bringing sobriety and discipline and dignity and self-control. None of these evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life uh, could be described as as extraordinary. They They are bringing order to the believer's life. These are the result of the work of the Spirit to sanctify us through the disciplines of his word. This concept of ordering also describes the purpose of the Holy Spirit's gifting. If we look at the New Testament and the idea that he gifts believers, why does he do that? Well, he does so to bring order to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good of the body. We're going to look more at that in a moment in 1 Corinthians 14. He, he specifically in 1 Corinthians 14 connects the Spirit's giving of gifts to bringing order within the church. Verse 12 says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. We're going to look more, more at that in just a moment. But the point here is that why does the Holy Spirit give gifts to the church? To bring the church to order, to build it up, to edify the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 give a, a, a wonderful metaphor of this where Paul says, by the Spirit, believers are being built together into a dwelling place for God, a holy temple in the Lord. And that metaphor in particular of the Holy Spirit building believers into a temple for God begins now to narrow the focus of the Holy Spirit's work specifically to the church and specifically to corporate worship. That that temple metaphor is not coincidental. The gathered New Testament church is the dwelling place for the Spirit of God in this age in a very similar way to how the presence of God dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament economy. In this temple, in the New Testament, built by the Spirit of God and indwelt by Him, worship takes place. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit of God who makes worship possible. Christians come to enjoy communion and fellowship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial atonement on our behalf, but that happens, Ephesians 2.18, in one Spirit. That's, that's the reason worship is possible, because of the work of the Spirit of God in uniting us to Christ. This also may be what Christ meant in John 4 when He said that God is seeking those who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Since God is a spirit, and does not have a body like man, true worship takes place in its essence, in the realm of the Spirit, in Him and through the Spirit of God. This is why it is essential that the Holy Spirit dwell within the New Testament temple, within His church, in the same way that He dwelt in the temple of the Old Testament. And so while in the Old Testament worship was specifically localized to that physical Spirit-indwelt temple in Jerusalem, the hour is now here, John 4:23, that worship takes place wherever two or three spirit and dwelt believers gather together, for there he is in their midst. Now this brings us then to specifically look at 1 Corinthians 14. 
To summarize, I would, I would suggest that if you look at all of the activities of the Holy Spirit throughout all of the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, while he does work in extraordinary ways, his normal way of working, his normal purpose of working is to bring to order God's plan and purposes. Even when he works in extraordinary ways, that's his plan and purpose. That's his plan and purpose in all of history. That's his plan and purpose for the church. And that's his plan and purpose for corporate worship. Characterizing the Holy Spirit's work as one of ordering really comes into, clarify, into clarity when we narrow the focus specifically to corporate worship. And here, 1 Corinthians 14, I think, is, is really the key passage. This, this, is, this is really the one full chapter in all the New Testament specifically given over to the topic of corporate worship and, not coincidentally, also to the Holy Spirit's work in corporate worship. Let's, I just want to read the first five verses, and we're going to look at these verses kind of to launch us into the chapter, but uh, bring in some of the, some, the, the, really the full argument of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love, of course, building off of that, that 13th chapter. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. All right, so what is, what is Paul's primary argument here? I think if we understand his primary argument and the reason behind his primary argument, it reveals some essential corporate princ- uh, 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 key principles regarding the nature and purpose of corporate worship and specifically the Holy Spirit's role in corporate worship. I want you to notice first the context of this whole discussion. Verse 19 says he's talking about in the church. Verse 26, when you come together. So in other words, the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is specifically the corporate gatherings of the church. There There is significant focus here upon gifts given to believers through the Spirit or by the one Spirit or or here in verse 12, uh, Paul calls these manifestations of the Spirit. So that's kind of, that's kind of the immediate context, gifts of the Spirit. But, but the specific context is on the use of these gifts in the context of coming together within the gatherings of the church. And so what, what this chapter teaches about the use of spiritual gifts within the church, I would suggest provides broader principles for the nature of corporate worship and the Holy Spirit's role in our corporate worship. Now, before we look at those principles, I want to I want to just briefly make a couple comments about these two gifts in this chapter because his argument is about the relationship between tongues and prophecy. That's kind of on the surface. That, that's the problem that he's addressing. But what underlies it all is where I want to get. But we have to make a couple comments about these these gifts first. Here in chapter 14... Paul is essentially arguing that prophecy 
within the context of the body, within the context of the corporate gatherings, prophecy is to be desired over the gift of tongues. Look again what he says in verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Or again in verse 18, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why is that? Why is it that Paul in this chapter, amidst all the problems that the Corinthians were, were dealing with, why is it that he's arguing for their context that prophecy should be desired over tongues? Well, I think it's in determining why Paul is arguing this that we will find these key principles regarding the nature of corporate worship and the Holy Spirit's role in it. So why is he arguing this? Well, in order to do that, I think we need to first just briefly grasp exactly what these gifts are. What is he talking about? So let's start with prophecy, maybe, maybe the easier of the two. I think one of the perhaps best, most concise definitions of prophecy in Scripture comes in Deuteronomy 18, with where, where there's actually a, a, a promise of the coming messianic prophet who would follow in the tradition of Old Testament prophets. And the text reads in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, to prophesy is to speak the very words of God, very simply. Sometimes those words are predictive. More often those words are instructive or exhortative. But no, no matter what the content is, prophecy is the delivery of direct divine revelation to the degree that one who prophesies can always unequivocally say, thus says the Lord. Right? This is the word of the Lord. That's what a, that's what a prophet does. The classic definition of prophecy is that it is a direct revelation from the Lord. What about tongues? Of course, tongues is perhaps a little bit more controversial, but what's convenient about discerning the nature of tongues is that there are only four texts in all of Scripture in which the, gifts, the gift appears. We often forget this. Only four. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is one of them, this extended discussion, and the other three are all found in the book of Acts. And and And... Looking particularly at the appearances of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, I think very clearly reveals the nature and purpose of the gift. And it sets up the context for what we're finding here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So a couple observations just real quickly about about tongues in the book of Acts. First, tongues in Acts chapter 2, glosses, and languages, dialecto, are used interchangeably in Acts chapter 2. It's clear in that text. Tongues is the ability to speak in a known language that the speaker has himself never learned. That's, that's clear in the context of Acts chapter 2. Luke records that they're speaking in tongues, glosses. At that point, it's not clear what he's talking about. But then later, all of these Jews from around the world say, we hear these men speaking in our own dialecto, our own languages. Clearly, those two concepts are being used interchangeably. Tongues is speaking in known languages. But second, the the three appearances of tongues in Acts involve the conversion of first, in Acts chapter 2, Jews from all over the world that had gathered for the day of Pentecost. Then, 
Gentiles within the land of Israel, Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, and then Gentiles outside Israel, Gentiles in Ephesus in chapter 19. And in each case, the purpose, the purpose of tongues as it spreads from Jerusalem and then outside to Gentiles within the land of Israel and then Gentiles outside the land of Israel, the purpose appears to be a sign particularly to unbelieving Israel. And it's a sign that membership in the body of Christ is without national distinction. In a sense, it is a, it is a sign of judgment upon those within God's chosen people of Israel who are, who are rejecting their Messiah. And then third, in two of the three cases in the book of Acts, and this is going to become significant for Paul's argument in in 1 Corinthians 14, in two of the three cases, we we find specific reference to the content. What was it that these apostles spoke as they spoke in known known languages that they themselves had never before learned? Well, chapter 2, verse 11 says that they were speaking the mighty works of God, And in chapter 10, verse 46, we find that they were extolling God. In other words, I think this is significant. The purpose of tongues, at least in the examples we've been given here, is not evangelism. The purpose of tongues is praising God in known languages as a sign to unbelieving Israel that their rejection of the Messiah will result in judgment and that the nature of the church is something different that the church is now something new in the outworking of God's plan, and the church is without national distinction. There is within the church no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. In fact, Paul specifically makes this point in 1 Corinthians 14 when he quotes Isaiah 28 in verse 21. He says, in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This was, this was a judgment predicted in the prophet Isaiah that would come upon Israel. The gift of tongues is a sign. The appearance of these strange tongues during these early years of the church had a specific purpose and it was a pronouncement of judgment. You rejected Messiah? There's going to to be consequences for this rejection. And so the gift of tongues, as is evident in the three appearances of Acts, along with what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, had a very specific purpose. It served that purpose in these early years of the church as a sign to unbelieving Israel. Now, why did I spend a few moments on that? Well, understanding the nature of prophecy and the nature of tongues helps us to understand why Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 would tell the Corinthian believers to prefer prophecy over tongues. And in understanding understanding that argument, we discern some very important principles about the nature of corporate worship. Remember, Paul is specifically referring to to, to corporate worship here, the context of the gathered church. And he's arguing that tongues is less desirable than prophecy, which reveals some some important principles for us. Now, we don't have 
time to delve into this too much. Of course, there's so much debate in the contemporary church on whether tongues and prophecy have continued. I personally believe that they have ceased. I won't get into that argument during this time. But I will say this. Even if they continue, which I don't believe they do, what Paul says in this chapter must apply. And arguing from greater to lesser, if what Paul says in this chapter applied when they were still in practice, how much more should the principles in this chapter apply now that these gifts have ceased? So what are the principles here that we can discern then from the nature of Paul's central argument regarding the way that the Holy Spirit works in the context of corporate worship and what, how we should understand the nature of worship, uh, of worship in and of itself? couple principles. Number one, corporate worship is corporate worship, not individual worship. This is the essential difference between tongues and prophecy. Think about this. This is exactly what Paul argues. Tongues is individual expression toward God, while prophecy has corporate benefit. Notice how Paul describes the purpose of tongues in verse 2. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him but, but utters the mystery of the Spirit. We saw this in the book of Acts, right? The content of tongues was praise toward God. So if you're in Corinth and no one is in the congregation, you're, you're speaking Russian, and no one in the congregation understands Russian, then you're the only one who knows what you're saying. There may be personal benefit for that. I, I'm personally, individually praising the Lord. I just happen to be doing it in a language no one understands. Okay, well, that may be edifying for you, but it's not edifying for anybody else. What's Paul's point? The point of corporate worship is not for individual edification. The point of corporate worship is for corporate edification. It is corporate worship. I mean, some of you chuckled when I put this point up there because it's kind of obvious, right? Corporate worship is corporate. And yet many in the, in, in the evangelical church today, I think kind of view this as a time for me to have my own personal individual experience with God. No, corporate worship is corporate. Prophecy, on the other hand, as Paul argues, is a gift that edifies the entire congregation. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I mean, this is not to say that individual expression of worship is not, is not valuable. It is. But when we gather as the church, individual expression is not the purpose the purpose is corporate worship. And again, I think Paul's emphasis here runs contrary to the common way of thinking that has become prevalent in evangelical worship today. Even among those who have in some, in some sense recovered a theocentric focus of worship, nevertheless, for many, it is assumed to be for individuals to have a personal experience with God but what Paul is arguing here is that when we gather as the church, our focus should be corporate, not just individual. But number two, corporate worship is for believers, not unbelievers. Notice verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Right? So tongues are individual, if no one can understand. 
And they're also a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. We saw this a moment ago. It was a sign for unbelieving Israel. It was a sign for unbelieving people. But the purpose of the corporate gatherings of the church is not primarily for unbelievers, to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ. Corporate worship is first and foremost a gathering of Christians, which is another reason that Paul emphasizes the superiority of prophecy, a gift that has benefit for believers over tongues in corporate worship. Now, that's not, of course, to downplay the importance of evangelism for the church. One of the one of the, what, one of what it means to, to fulfill the Great Commission is to preach the gospel to every living creature. But evangelism is not the primary purpose of the corporate gatherings of the church. That's Paul's emphasis here. But then third, corporate worship has the primary purpose of edification, not merely expression. We saw this a moment ago in the book of Acts. The content of speaking in tongues was what? Exaltation and praise of God. Expression of praise to the Lord. That's clear in, in chapter 14 as well. Paul says in verse 2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And he describes the content in verses 16 through 17 as giving thanks to God. So speaking in tongues was, was an act of individual expression toward God that certainly brought him glory. But Paul indicates that in corporate worship, not only should we be concerned about the corporate rather than the individual, we should also be primarily concerned about corporate edification, not just expression. I mean, if you look through this chapter over and over and over again, Paul is emphasizing the purpose being edification. Verse 3, upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, build up the church. Verse 5, that the church may be built up. Verse 6, how will I benefit you? Verse 9, how will anyone know what is said? Verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17, the other person is not being built up. Verse 19, to instruct others. And then this point really all climaxes in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. In other words, one of the core reasons that Paul is insisting in this chapter that prophecy is to be desired over tongues and corporate worship is that tongues is primarily a gift of individual expression toward God, whereas prophecy is a gift that better fits the formative purposes of corporate worship, the edifying purposes of corporate worship. I mean, this, is a, this is a passage about worship. It's a passage about corporate worship, but the emphasis is not on individual expression. Rather, it is on edification. What we are doing when we gather is that God is actually working upon us to edify us rather than us somehow simply performing for God. Sometimes you hear that as a, as a descriptor of, of what we're doing when we worship. When we worship, we're performing for God. No, in a, in a corporate worship service, we are not the primary actors. Corporate worship is not us performing for God. That, that's paganism. No, a theology of worship that says that corporate worship is primarily about us doing things for God, that's still anthropocentric. Rather, what Paul, what the, the, the underlying principle of Paul's argument here is that a proper theocentric theology of worship will recognize that in a corporate worship service, God is the primary actor. 
It is God who calls us to draw near to him. We don't call him down to us. It is God who speaks to us first through his word. It is only then that we respond back to him. And even our responses in worship should not be based on the natural, authentic expressions of our hearts, which are still tainted by sin. Rather, our responses should be framed by the words, forms, and affections ordained for us in the word of God. This is why the word of God is so central to our worship. Corporate worship is the means through which God forms our image of him and matures our responses toward him. It is edification. It is building up. So as church leaders, when we think about what we're going to do in a worship service and how, the, how, how we're going to expect the Holy Spirit to work, our primary con- con- concern should be how to form and shape and disciple and edify the expressions of the people in our congregations according to the Spirit-inspired Word of God. That's how he's going to work. And then fourth... Paul also tells us exactly how this kind of edification in corporate worship takes place. Edification in corporate worship takes place through order, not disorder. If the Holy Spirit truly is at work in our corporate worship, we will know because he works in an orderly way. Apparently Christians in the first century church at Corinth had similar expectations about corporate worship as contemporary worshipers do. True worship will be spontaneous. Too much structure stifles the Holy Spirit. They were apparently extending this expectation beyond just the miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy, even to singing and teaching, which you can see in verse 6. Everyone has a hymn, everyone has a prophecy, everyone has a, has a, has a word. Which, which, I mean, that makes clear that what Paul is arguing in this chapter is it does not only apply to when the miraculous gifts were in use. It also applies to the other elements of our worship, like singing and teaching. And remember, Paul is dealing here with, with Holy Spirit-given gifts. Yet even in that context, Paul insists that confusion and disorder are evidences that he is not working. And arguing from the greater to the lesser, if the Holy Spirit works in corporate worship through order even when he was giving miraculous gifts, certainly his work is orderly once those gifts have ceased. It is a God of peace, Paul argues, who is at work in corporate worship. And so on this basis, Paul Paul provides principles for order. I won't go through them for sake of time, but he gives instructions. Only one, only two or three at a time, and you've got to take your turn. Oh, but I'm overcome by the Holy Spirit. I can't help it. Wrong. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There is order to this. And so in corporate worship, exactly because of how the Holy Spirit of God works and because of the purpose of corporate worship to form disciple worshipers who will properly bring order and glory to God, verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And then those principles lead to one final principle. Corporate worship should be biblically regulated, not unregulated. In other words, if corporate worship is God's work upon us to make us into mature Christians, that is the Holy Spirit's dominant work in the context of corporate worship. 
then we must be sure to use those means that he has prescribed in his word to do so. This is what Paul emphasizes in verse uh, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. I mean, Paul here is is inscripturating direct revelation from the Lord. He is he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was contributing to that prophetic word more fully confirmed, the written word of God, which always contains the final authority. Paul highlights this as well in the fact that prophecy given in a corporate worship service had to be tested with the same standard as the Old Testament. There's no new standard. So there's biblical authority, our corporate worship. If we're going to be sure that the Holy Spirit of God is working, then we need to regulate what we are doing by the word of God. We need to include those elements that he has prescribed, the preaching of Scripture, the public reading of Scripture, prayer, giving, singing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, baptism, the Lord's table. These are God-prescribed elements of corporate worship, and it is through those God-prescribed, scriptural, regulated uh, elements that the Holy Spirit of God will work. The content of our worship must be filled with the Word of God. Clearly, what we teach and preach, what we pray, what we sing, must contain the Spirit-inspired Word of God, because that is how He will work. If the Holy Spirit is going to work, if that's going to be our expectation, then what we should expect is that the word of God will be dominant. So what about that common expectation? Extraordinary? No. If the Holy Spirit is working, then our corporate worship will be corporate. It will be a gathering of believers. It will have the primary purpose of edification, not just expression, but but forming the body. That will be accomplished through order, not disorder, and will be regulated by the Spirit-inspired Word of God. If we really want the Holy Spirit to be working in our midst, then we need to take Paul's argument here under advisement and be, and be sure that what we are doing in our churches matches Paul's expectation for how the Holy Spirit works. All right, I think we have just a few minutes for some questions, sorry I didn't leave too much time today. There'll, there'll be uh, hopefully some little longer times in, in uh, future sessions, but we have a, maybe a few minutes. My question to you is who's got a question? Yeah, I got a question. Since I have the mic, I guess I'll talk. Uh, I'll talk right over Robbie. Since you agree with the paper that Dr. Woods, our president, wrote, that's really good. (laughs) 
Okay, um, let's go to Stan Newton over here and have him ask a question. Yeah, I was just going to talk as a practitioner if you could speak to the fact that we don't use lament often in our ordered corporate worship, which then lends itself to sort of the other half of the emotion. Could you speak yeah. to that maybe from an Old Testament perspective? Yeah, I think if, if we're looking to the scriptures primarily for the language of our worship, then it's going to be fully orbed as we find, for instance, in the, in the Psalms. And lament's going to be one of those things. A, a worship that is more dominated by just my authentic expression, whatever I'm feeling in the moment kind of thing, tend, tends to be uh, more limited, right? So, so some people say, well, I like contemporary worship because it's far more emotional. My response is actually it's far less emotional than what we find in the Psalms, there's much, there's a much more fully orbed expressiveness there. Let's shape our expression by that rather than this very narrow, shallow, immature, authentic expression that just kind of flows naturally out of me. So yeah, I think lament's a perfect example of that. Uh, we'll, we'll, and there, there are probably other expressions that we don't find very common in our churches that we should because it's what we find in the scripture. So thank you for that. You know, I want to piggyback on what you just said because that was really a profound statement and a lot of people miss it today. And that is that if you read the scriptures or if you read, for example, have you ever read the devotions of Sir Lancelot Andrews? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. There is an emotion there right. and a depth there that reflects a deep understanding of the word and it's not a superficial That's emotionalism. Right. And what we so often see today, because spiritual lives are shallow and superficial, is they really have a very immature, superficial view of expressing emotion. And it becomes emotionalism rather than this, um, I don't like using the word authentic, but, but this, this genuine, deep um, expression of a spiritual relationship with God. Yep. And... You, talk, you can talk to a lot of people about this, and because they're so used to superficialism, they don't understand the difference. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in even more depth on this issue of emotion okay. in a later session as well. Good, so, yeah, good, we're gonna, great. Gonna okay, Greg Scott, Charlie back here. Uh, yeah, I, as you were thinking about the supernatural nature of tongues, um, it got, I got to thinking about where was the other thing in the Bible about uh, miraculous work with language? It was the Tower of Babel. And if you think about the Tower of Babel, it looks like from the text there that God is breaking up uh, man's language to prevent the universality of sin and deception. And with tongues, you have the... Two millennia later, two millennia plus later, Israel has finished the progress of revelation up to the incarnation. And so now it's almost like the Holy Spirit is announcing to the world that there is a universality, but it's not of sin and deception. It's of the gospel of our my incarnate son. And so it seems like the two, Babel and the gift of tongues, uh, somehow related, bracketing the revelation progressively through the history of Israel. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, a lot of people sort of uh, might describe Acts two as a reversal of Babel and for for the New Testament church, right? That there's a there's a universal universality now of the church. 
Uh, I think it's certainly true. I do think, again, I think there, there is also this judgment picture given given to unbelieving Israel too, but but absolutely, right? Now, now the church is without without national distinction, the New Testament church, right? Gleason Archer made the observation that even though you have different geographical areas, I think there's 16 in listed in Acts mm-hmm. 2, there's only uh, 12 language groups. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, one for each apostle in case people didn't connect. <laughs> if you went to the MSNBC School of Mathematics, then. Anybody, any other questions over here? I may be jumping ahead of myself, and it might be kind of a loaded question, but uh, I guess growing up in church, and of course we wouldn't be here if we weren't passionate about these topics, but a lot of times, for the most part, we're all on the same page, at least at the conference kind of idea. How do you, can you speak to the idea or have any suggestions? How do we impart these truths? Um, how do we, you know, at what point do we debate them? You know, because we, we might be all doing the same thing. So how do we get the next generation or, or get people away from where they're at on the other side? Yeah, I mean that, that's a you know, you're right. That's a, that's a huge question. But I I think uh, that the number one thing, well, uh, two two dominant things I try to get across to my students that I, you know who are all sort of caught up in this. One is the formative nature of corporate worship. It's not it's not just about authentic expression. What we do when we gather is for the building up. I mean this is this is the one chapter in the entire New Testament given entirely over to what we're supposed to do in a corporate worship service. And the emphasis is without doubt edification, edification, edification. It's not my individual expression. That's got to be key. And then number two is the significance of the word of God. Because if that edification is going to happen, it has to happen through God's word. So I want to make sure that everything that we do, the content, the order, the emphasis, Everything is dominated by God's word because that is the way through which he will work. Those two things, I think if we harp over and over and over again to our people, to our kids, those two emphases are going to go a long way to help to correct some of the, some of the, the drift, I think. And you're going to be addressing some more about this as yeah. you go into other Yeah, a lot other of these topics, topics we're, going to, yeah. we're going to explore more yeah. this week. He's got a blog. And I'm always amazed at how he's attacked on the blog and how calm and patient he is in his answers. If it were me, I would have to wait two years before I could be calm and patient for one of those answers, okay? So I don't know if that's a spiritual gift or or just what it is, but you have it, I don't. All right, well, we need to break for our dinner break. We'll be back here. We will begin promptly at 7.30 this evening for our uh, Monday night worship service. Dr. Ross is speaking this evening, and so be back here then. Let's close in prayer. Oh, one other announcement to go along with this. I talked to Dr. Ice. Some of you have been asking how Tommy's doing, and he's doing much better. This epidural that he had, a shot that he had about a week ago, is really beginning to manifest itself. Now, it takes about a week, he said, for it to really have have an impact, so he's doing well. And he was live streaming the uh, earlier session, so he's watching, so he may be listening now, but he's doing, uh, doing well. So be in prayer for, continue to be in prayer for him and his healing.
Father, we thank you for this time that we've had today to be challenged by your word, to be in your word, that your word is at the center of our worship. And thank you for uh, Scott's insights and his presentation. We pray now for us as we travel, as we go eat, that we may have a time to be refreshed and strengthened uh, from our food and prepared to come back tonight to focus once again on the topic of worship. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.